You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group and American National Insurance. Grilling season is here, and you may be looking for the perfect wine pairing for your delicious summer cooking. The Federalist offers a lineup of American craft wines that are bold, full-bodied, and crafted with as much quality and character as the men they celebrate. Each bottle featuring audacious takes on traditional styles. The Federalist is the perfect companion to anything that you're grilling up tonight. You can use promo code TDF20 to get 20% off your first bottle at uncork.com. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For. People who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most innovative and creative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Chef J.J. Johnson. Women. People of color are, are, haven't been safe in the culinary world space for a long time. So uh, for people to say, yeah, man, I want to come here. Like I look at the staff and people are smiling and it seems like a really safe space. It means like, hey, we're really doing our job. Like we're collectively doing our job. And I think that's, that just, that's just a goal for the future of what the culinary world will look like. Joseph J.J. Johnson is a James Beard Foundation Book Award winning chef and author best known for cooking the food of the African diaspora. He is a chef on BuzzFeed's Tasty Platform and a TV host on Just Eats with Chef JJ. He is the founder of Ingrained Hospitality Concepts, and he recently opened Field Trip, a study of rice and grains. The quick casual rice bowl shop in Harlem highlights rice traditions from around the world with globally inspired flavors and techniques. Please enjoy my interview with Chef J.J. Johnson. Hi, Chef. How are you? Good. Can you hear me well? I can. Thank you so much for joining me on To Dine for the Podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me. I'm going to begin this podcast the way I begin all the podcasts, and it's an especially difficult question for you since you have had the luxury of dining in some fabulous restaurants. I always ask the guest, where is their favorite restaurant, and where do they love that, that best speaks to who they are uh, where they come from or what they love. I'm just wondering, where would you take me as far as your favorite restaurant? Woo! <laughs> Woo, so many good places. 
Oh man, we started. We talking already? Yes, oh, we're oh, doing it. My goodness, you know I'm a person that's like a you know I'm a community guy, and I rather take you from like community to community or state to state. So I got to stay true to Harlem. You know, right now I got to give a big shout out to Sylvia's. Yes, they are the forefront of what restaurants want to be like. What I what I hope to be like. You know, something that's been ingrained in the community for years. Uh, so you know, for me, restaurants are more than just about the food. It's about what they do for people, and they do so much for the people of Harlem. They do so much for everybody. And you, you can still go there and get breakfast for like six or seven bucks, something <laughs> like that. I don't know if they went up on the price yet now, but. Uh, when I when I first came to when I first lived in New York City, I would go to eat breakfast in the morning times with my aunt at Sylvia's. It was kind of like a tradition that we would do, um, and I know the family really well, and I and I love going there and uh, uh, getting to smell the pork chop. So that's what I recommend to everybody. Well, first of all, that's a fantastic choice. It, it Sylvia's choosing Sylvia's is more than choosing a restaurant. You're choosing a story. You're choosing a location. You're choosing soul food, something cultural, something comforting. And then you're also choosing like a standard of hospitality, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, listen, like, you, you know, you're talking about somebody that, you know, sold land in their hometown to open up a restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. And then bought the building and owned the block. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's the way that I hope I can move. And uh, yeah, I mean, people have work. There's some people that have been working there for a really long time, put their kids through college. Yes. You know, bought them, got a mortgage in a house. I mean, that's yes. what, I, I believe that's what restaurants should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I get so excited talking about it. Uh, the, the Woods family is just so great. Uh, and just watching them grow from generation to generation. It's like, you have no choice. You are up next and you will take this place over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, 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 it is. It's an obligation, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, that's an awesome choice. Thank you for sharing that. I, I know you were born in Long Island, grew up in the Poconos. I read that when you were seven, as early as seven, you kind of knew that you liked to cook. Can you take me back to those early memories of when you kind of knew this might be your thing? Uh, yeah, listen, I grew up in my grandma's kitchen. My Puerto Rican grandmother consists of her. At that time, I thought they were my great aunts. They were my great, great aunts. Who, mm. who would have known, right? They were her sous chefs. They used to have the best time. I would say collectively, they all injected food DNA in me, but especially my grandmother. And, you know, going back, just to walk you through that, you know, my grandfather was in World War II, was one of the few 100 Black men to get the GI Bill uh, to, build, to get a home or land. He chose to get a home in Long Island uh, because of his rank. And then when he retired from postal service, he then sold his home in Long Island, I think like some record breaking time, like four days. And then everybody moved to Pennsylvania. So my mom, her sister, my aunt, and we all live about three blocks away from each other. So when my dad commuted back and forth to New York, you talk about pay your dues. I don't know how he did that. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was a you know kindergarten and first grade teacher. She would drop me off to my grandparents' house. That's where I would hang out all day. And is there a specific meal you remember making? Is there something when you think about being in your grandmother's kitchen, was there a dish she loved to make? Was there something that takes you right back to that that memory? I feel like yeah, food is always a memory. My grandmother would make two dishes that, you know, they, they happen to be rice, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> but she would make a dish called asopal, which is a soupy rice, similar to like kanji. She would drink it out of a coffee cup. And then she would also make her cast iron paella. Mm. It was like really a great dish. I have a lot of seafood and peas and vegetables. So I'm making myself hungry talking about it. <laughs> but those are two dishes that remind me. And then my grandmother died. I was like eight years old uh, when she passed away. Oh, wow. So, but I, my, my great aunts were still there. Food in the house changed. 
And I probably think that's why I want to become a chef because it's like, oh my God, I'm missing these like amazing moments. And I saw a commercial for Culinary Institute of America, told my parents I would go to school there. They kind of chuckled at me. And did you go to school there? I went to Culinary Institute of America, which is like crazy. (laughs) Uh, And I've always, I'm like living my, living the dream of what I've always wanted wanted to do and be. So when you graduated from uh, the Culinary Institute of America, you had all these different directions you could have taken that. Take me from that when you're when you're just leaving Culinary Institute of America. What decision did you make? And and those early years of uh, grinding it out, what did they look like? Uh, early years, Culinary Institute of America, I was the worst in my class. Uh, <laughs> the chef used to say, if your haircuts were as good as your knife cuts, you'd be really good. Because I was like, go to the barber, make sure my like haircuts were like super precision. But I was like always a hustler, right? So one of my closest friends in culinary school, or closest friends today, he owns Sublime Donuts in Atlanta. Back then, we used to like throw parties. So we would like rent out a club called Chrome. We would go to Maris and Vassar. We would throw flyers under the door because we wanted to make money. I didn't want to be broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in culinary school, you don't really have enough time to have like a full-time job. You're in sure. eight to 10 hours. So it was like, let me capitalize on like this Saturday party. We all go to school on Saturday, but we're off on Sundays and I can make maybe 400, 500 bucks at a nightclub. And um, that's what we did uh, for a lot of my culinary career. And then from there, people who started to know the Vassar kids and Maris kids used to know who I was. So then they would hire me to cook like these catered events for fraternities and sororities. So I would do that. I would burn, smoke out people's kitchens. Wow. I would call my my roommate Chez, like, Chez, I need your help. Cause he was a really good cook. I need your help. I'm struggling <laughs> over here. He would like run over there and help me. And then when I started to kind of get in my groove, I started to be like this weekend personal chef for a Sue Solomon who made Chanel number no. five. Mm-hmm. Her ex-husband was the CEO of Perry Ellis. They would have fabulous guests over the house, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, all these people come to their house and I would cook potato latkes with caviar and cream on top. I would do like deep dish lasagnas, like very simple things when I look back mm-hmm. and I like laugh at myself. But um, <laughs> that was that that was like early on. Then I got a, my in, I really wanted to get my internship in Puerto Rico at the Ritz Carlton. But, you know, when you when you're in culinary school, you have to go through the same interviewing process like everybody else. I just did an interview well, but I got hired for Tribeca Grill hmm. uh, with Drew Nipriant, which was amazing looking back that I started, I truly like consider starting my career there. And was that your first restaurant in New York City? Was the that Tribeca was my Grill? first restaurant job in New York City. Now I was a dishwasher before going to culinary school. Right. Uh, I worked in like a country club. So I worked with Drew. Uh, he just hired Stephen Lowendowski. So it was like this new hot chef. And I'm like, hold on, this dude is like 26 years old, 27 years old. He's running a kitchen doing 1500 covers a night. Mm. And so I was like, I want to be like this guy. When I grow mm. up, I want to be like Stephen Lewandowski. I want to be like 26, 27. I want to be running a kitchen. And that was like a real eye opener for me at Tribeca because it was like, I wasn't allowed to plate certain dishes. I was only like garbage hot apps. You had to work really hard. Kind of had some back and forth words with some line cooks because they would try to treat me certain ways. Cause I, you know, this intern in the kitchen but the greatest thing there was Drew treated everybody equally. It didn't matter if you were extern, intern, a lead line. He was really, he really treated everybody with respect and it didn't matter what you look like. And I always remember that vividness of him, like walking around the kitchen, shaking everybody's hand. And I was like, oh, if I ever, when I run a kitchen, I own a restaurant, I'm going to, I want to do that. 
So this experience at Tribeca Grill was really very, very important for a lot of reasons. One, it gave you a map of what you could do at a young age, right? It's one thing when you think of people who run restaurants, you don't think of someone who's 26 and you saw it firsthand that you could do it, that it was possible. And then it kind of probably got in your head of what you could achieve at a young age. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it did. It really like put me at this, like, let me focus and let me push hard to try to do something. My goal was like to really push hard at a young age and grind it out. Um, and what I did after my internship, go, you go back to culinary school. And then I saw this ad for a restaurant called Tropica that used to be in Grand Central. And I would come back to New York and I had friends in New York for my internship. And I would come for my externship. I would come back and work on the weekends at Tropica. So I would work Friday night service, Saturday night service and Sunday brunch and then go back to culinary school. Oh my God. I would party in New York, right? Like I, <laughs> you know, knew every, like I used to party with like Ali Love, like who would ever think of that? You know, like these are the kids I would like hang out with now that are all like big time folks. But that taught that, that restaurant taught me like Eric was a chef there and he would, he taught me how to cook fish properly. Mm-hmm. He really let me rock out on a station. He was the first chef that I learned, like, you're going to, you're going to screw up, but don't worry about it. You have to screw up soon in your career. And he really coached me through that. And then I graduated culinary school. I told my parents I would get, I promised my parents I would get my bachelor's. Mm-hmm. I went off to Seton Hall University, which was like the worst and best decision I've, I ever did. Why? Why do you say that? That I, That's when I really learned I loved food because I would just constantly talk about food all the time to everybody. And people were like, mm-hmm. yo, what's wrong with you, man? Like, what are you doing? The cafeteria food was trash. I was like, oh my <laughs> God, I love culinary food, America's food. And it, and it also made me come to the realization that I needed that I belong in the culinary world. Mm. At one point, I didn't think I belonged in the culinary world. I was like, I'm going to get my bachelor's degree. I'll work at like some fancy hotel. I'll understand food and business. But then I took a year off. I went to work at Skytop Lodge in Pennsylvania, where I'm from. And then I went back to culinary school to get my bachelor's. Um, and I think that's why I'm able to see like food through like multiple lenses. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. 
So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American national agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. Grilling season is here, and you may be looking for the perfect wine pairing for your delicious summer cooking. The Federalist offers a lineup of American craft wines that are bold, full-bodied, and crafted with as much quality and character as the men they celebrate. Each bottle featuring audacious takes on traditional styles. The Federalist is the perfect companion to anything that you're grilling up tonight. You can use promo code TDF20 to get 20% off your first bottle at uncork.com. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. It sounds like your Seton Hall experience, even though it felt like a mistake at times, was actually one of the best things that ever happened to you. Do you feel like you learn more about like the history of food and how food can tell a story in a different way? I think a little bit of that. Yeah, 100%. Also, like I learned like I could connect with people through food conversation. Like, where are you from? Oh, really? Do you eat that dish? I know that dish. And I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. But it was interesting. I mean, one of my closest friends... Catherine Felice, like I met at Senior Hall. I met a lot of great, great people at Senior Hall that are friends with today. Mm-hmm. And they always laugh because they're like, and I think everybody laughs, like high school friends. They're all like, yo, you say you were going to be like this big chef. You were going to like do all these things. And we all just laughed at you. But you got to believe before everybody else believes. Amen to that. Amen to that. And obviously you did believe. At one point you traveled to Ghana and studied or cooked there. Can you talk about that experience and what it taught you? I met a gentleman named Alexander Smalls. He invited me to, he, he, he got invited to do these American themed dinners in Ghana over 60 days. He said, yeah, I'm not going to cook, but do you want to come cook? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll come. No problem. I'll cook like a free trip to Ghana. And yeah. it'd be crazy. At that point, I got a job offer from Tao to be a sous chef at Arlington for like Laurent Turin. Mm-hmm. And so like, I'm at this like middle point in the row where it's like, okay, do I go to Ghana? I worked at Morgan Stanley Executive Dining Room. Do I go to Ghana? Or do I go work at the Tao Group? Yeah. Right? Who was like growing. And I picked Ghana. And if I would have never picked that route, I wouldn't be who I am today. Interesting. And why do you say that? Because I think everybody has a point in their career, their life, where it's like you can go down multiple yellow brick roads. There's like a split in the road. And what, what side of the road do you pick? Right. And you never know if it's the right way. You never know. But some people can look back in their life and go, oh, my goodness, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be this. Um, and for me, I see, I can look back and see that, you know what I mean? You came to a fork in the road. That was your fork in the road. You chose Ghana and it has forever changed the way you cook. How? That was the first time I realized that I could cook who I was, who I am. You know, being a chef is honing a craft, right? How do you make the best pasta, cook the best risotto, sear the best steak? Most of the time it's not about like creating flavors or telling a story or digging deep. That's what Ghana did for me. Like, hold on. I think this is who I am. I'm a kid of that diaspora. Why hasn't anybody taught me this? And I started like self-teach myself about who I was as a person, who the diaspora is, kind of all these different aspects. And then that's what I kind of develop on the plate. I don't look at food. Like most chefs look at food and be like, okay, it's seasonality. I'm going to get heirloom tomatoes. And then I'm going to put mozzarella (laughs) cheese with this. I'm like, yeah, it's seasonality. I got heirloom tomatoes, but where in the world do I want to cook? Like, who do I want to cook? Like, who do you want to embody? Right. Yeah. Who do I want to embody or give me influence? 
And I look at, that's how I look at foods. I feel like I'm cooking the food of the people all the time. We always talk about how food is the great common denominator and is, is really a connector, which it is. Yes, it is. But I love what you have done with Field Trip because um, you start with something very simple, which is rice. And rice is used around the world in so many different dishes, and it really is a great common denominator. Can you talk about your inspiration for creating Field Trip and what it is? So Field Trip is a rice bowl shop. You know, it's always hard for me to tell me what Field Trip is. I think Field Trip is just like the greatest restaurant in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that that allows to cook a, ingredients at a super high, like super high level ingredients at an affordable rate. And it just happens to be rice, right? The ingredient that can connect everybody. Mm-hmm. And if you want to learn about somebody and their culture, you can use rice as that vessel because you can there's rice dishes. There might be rice that's been grown in that area. And that's what we do at Field Trip. We take you on a journey or field trip. There's five different rice on our menu. Nothing is bleached or enriched. Most of the rice comes directly from the farm. We know if we're cooking basmati rice, we might be doing it in a biryani style, or we might be doing it in a jollof style. If you have Carolina gold rice, you might be mm-hmm. seeing it very Southern. So we're, in, we're, we're embodying, like you said, these locations of people and, and food to tell stories and hopefully connect people. That's amazing. That's awesome. When you first had the idea for Field Trip, when it first got off the ground, how was it received and, and what has that journey been like? So when for, before I opened the door to the Field Trip, my goal was to make it like similar to like David Chang's Momofuku. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, it's going to be this counter restaurant. People will come. We'll be cooking open counter style. And it, it could have worked. And at that time, a friend of mine and a partner was like, nobody's going to pay $25 or $23 for rice. You're crazy. <laughs> I was like, why not? Oh, I'm cooking the rice. Like, it's like this beautiful. like, no, like rice is. And I'm like, you're right. Rice is the most dis- disrespected ingredient here. So we reverse engineered that. I didn't know what fast casual was. It was like, okay, if I sell it for $15, how many people do I have to do a day? If I sell it for $10, how many people do I have to do a day? And I believe that we could do those numbers. In the beginning, it was rough. Like we opened in a corridor where people were like, what's this rice bowl shop? And why are you here? <laughs> Right. Didn't yeah. matter that I was have family in the community. It doesn't matter that I've been living here for 15 years. It doesn't matter right. my dad grew up here or my uncle knows everybody on the block. Right. They're like, what? So, we had to, you know, when you open in communities, I think like inner city communities and rural communities, you have to earn trust. Yes. And we built trust not early on, but through the pandemic where people were like, hold on, let me try this food. Like this is the only spot open. <laughs> oh, this is actually really good. Mm. It started to convert people what I consider converting like Popeye's eaters and McDonald's eaters to eat with us like once a week, which became a really beautiful thing. Oh, that's amazing. You know, you have this incredible, beautiful idea of connecting through world and telling this story about rice and, and, and how every culture has a different way of expressing their food through rice. But at the end of the day, right, it's like, is it good? Can I afford it? And especially if you're going to do a, a fast casual, like, is this some, is this a place I'd go again? Right. Especially yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. Like, and listen, I, this is one thing I've learned, uh, Kate, is that Fast casual restaurants, fast food restaurants are the most consistent restaurants in the world. It doesn't matter that we can agree if they're good for you, if they're this and that. But like the reason why they are who they are is because they're able to deliver the same thing over and over and over and over and yes. over again. Yes. And they're not changing their menu seasonally. Right. Right. They're not doing <laughs> right. any of that. Right. They're like, yeah, let me. And even if you take it, if you if you take a step away from fast casual and you go to a casual dining scene. As much as some of these other places, I'm like, oh, I'm going to, this is my next move, right? I'm going to like 
recreate the Applebee's or recreate the Ruby Tuesdays, these plays are just as consistent. You bring up a really good point because, you know, here we are talking about these, you know, beautiful, amazing ideas about food and storytelling. But at the end of the day, running a restaurant is a business. How have you grappled with, reconciled, made peace with wanting to do the work that you're doing with your, you know, Puerto Rican grandmother, your trip to Ghana with the work that you can really, you're trying to say something in the world through food and the idea of food as a business. You know, I, I was really fortunate to like work for, for Dick Parsons, ex-CEO of Time Warner Citibank when he was the owner of the Cecil or I was a chef of the Cecil. And, you know, I consider that like grad school, business school that he would teach me like, hey, you got to watch the cash flow moves like this. It goes like this, like the bank doesn't close. He used to say the bank doesn't close because when the credit card business, the bank closed because they weren't paying attention to their cash. And when I first raised money for field trip, I let people convince me that I was raising too much money. But I didn't raise enough money. Mm, right. Really? My peer, my peers were raising 10x, 15x. Even today, even in my series A that I raised, still was like minimal to what we've seen other people do. Sweet green in a series A or mm-hmm. Chipotle in a series A. Like it's insane. And that has a lot to do with a lot of things, race and all that stuff, color my skin, right? But so when I came in the business, I was like, okay, I'm gonna raise this amount of money. But I know I can still support the business because I'm very fortunate of what I kind of do in my brand and my career. And I'm going to constantly watch the cash. And I probably drive my accountants nuts, right? Or I know I do because I'm constantly <laughs> like, well, hold on. The accounts payable sheet, your cash is showing this. But in the bank, it says this. What Are you guys not paying attention to the cash? Right. So if you look at restaurants as like a real business and not like, oh, the margins are small or this, everybody's business margins are small. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do you get more out of the margins, right? Like McDonald's margins are small. CPG category margins are small. Nobody's margins are these big margins. Now, there are some businesses where the margins are very big, right? Mm-hmm. But we're just not in that business. That's why I chose to sign up to this. Does sometimes the, the, the financial pressure of it wear on you? Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. I think financial pressure on all owners wear on. I mean, one of my buddies once said to me was like, yeah, man, I work at Barclays. You know, we lend money to people all the time. Like, who who do you lend money to? He's like, yeah, sometimes we're lending money to some of the biggest companies. They can't even, they can't even cover their payroll. Some of the biggest companies can't even cover their payroll. We'll lend them $30, $40 million on a 15-day 15, 15 turnaround. And I'm like, hold on, that's like a loan shark. <laughs> and what's the interest rate? Oh, 4, 4%, 5%. But he's like, yeah, but we know they're going to, the money's going to, they're going to get the money because it's going to hit. So it's like a lot of these businesses we've been believing have been making all this money, but from a cash perspective, the money moves and shifts so much that sometimes you just need a little bit more money to get you through a hard time. And I think we've seen that with the pandemic, right? The government helped out a little bit, but just not enough to get restaurants through these hard moments. So the financial bearing is is, is hard, especially now with the supply chain, how prices are jumping every day. You know, you set your prices to be this. And then you're like, okay, chicken now is $100 a case versus $66 a case. Next thing you know, the next day is $125 a case. There's no way to run a business that way, right? And I don't know if that will stop anytime soon, but the financials are something I constantly are looking at and also just making my team very aware of the financials, my chief of staff, my director of operations. Everybody knows what the financials are. Everybody knows, you know, why are we spending money on that? Does it really cost that much? Do we need that? What will that do? 
And this is a business side of you. When you were in culinary school, you probably had no idea that you were going to be so well-versed in, you know, come now, right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, You're a James Beard Award winner. You are on a James Beard Award uh, advisory board. What has that experience been like to be a part of that? So, yeah, I'm a James Beard Award winner for my book, Between Harlem and Heaven, with Veronica Chambers and Alexander Smalls. That was an amazing moment, something we worked really hard on all together. Uh, the goal was for that book to be kind of like uh, the French Laundry or the Aquavi book to be on the shelf forever. Then I was on the James Beard Advisory Committee, which was great, talking about sustainability boot camp, like they call it James Beard Boot Camp, which I did where you feel like you can take over the world when you leave and then giving input afterwards. And then today, up for uh, James Beard, nominated for James Beard Best Chef New York, which is like amazing, just, just insane. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Literally cried uh, when I found out I was on the finals list. But for me, it's like, hold on. Maybe I do embody the everyday uh, independent owned restaurant. You know, that's what I represent on that list. So there's a lot on my shoulders to manifest and hopefully win uh, because I think there's a lot of restaurants that we've all been to where we eat something on a paper plate, we lick our fingers and we're like, oh my goodness, this is the best thing I've ever had. But you never hear about this place. People don't write about it. They're never mm-hmm. on a they're never on a James Beard award list. So to have a spot that everything's under $13, it just happens out of ethically source ingredients, just like everybody else. And also, and in all industries, right? Music, movies, food. We all need something to work towards because we're all working so hard, mm-hmm. right? So like in the restaurant industry, you know, being on a James Beard finals list or long list drives customers, right? It's the Oscars. It's the Oscars right. of food. Yeah. Like you you potentially like, you you know, you talk about margins in the business. Mm-hmm. You talk about doing like two, 200, 300 people a day. You might jump to 400, 500 people a day, right? Mm-hmm. That these things are drivers. So I look at them, a lot of them as marketing tools uh, to help bring awareness other places. And we, we see it now at the Harlem location from the moment I was on the long list, the sales went up to the short list, the sales went up. And I mean, we just reopened back on Sundays. And at one point I'm like, okay, I'm going to close Sundays. Like I, <laughs> there's no reason to be open until like the last three Sundays. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like calling the restaurant. Do you guys need me to walk over there? Do you need help? They're like, no, nah, we got it. I'm so happy to be busy today. So it's like, Great. But that's because of, 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 of a, you know, a bunch of things, but also just awareness on the James Beard list of, of what it's done. And, and, and it also like for small communities out there, if you look at the list this year, it, it, it's a driver going to drive a lot of people to communities that they never even recognized or even mm-hmm. been to before. Just to hear your evolution in this short conversation that we're having and to hear all the different hats you've had to wear and really become because of this journey that you're on that has everything to do with food and some of it has nothing to do with food. When you look at them all, what part of what you do on a daily basis is most JJ? What still gets you going, gets you really excited and what do you really love? Oh, wow. It's so crazy. I would say right now my career, what gets me going is that I'm able to employ people. Hmm. I'm able to employ really good people uh, to have a safe space to work in. Um, That's what really, like really keeps me going. And I would say number two is probably, we still, we're, we're still feeding folks in the Harlem yeah. community. Uh, that keeps me going to know that we're able to keep doing that and that people reach out to us and look to us to help. So those are two things that really keep me going. Like 
I believe that everybody, you know, this is crazy. Everybody doesn't cook good food, but I believe that cooking good food is easy. Like that's what we, that's where we're, we're in the job to cook good food. Like mm-hmm. you're not thinking of a chef that I'm cooking good food, like that my food is good. Then you shouldn't be in the industry. You got a problem. <laughs> you have a problem. Like you should yeah. be, that should be your driver to cook good food. Right. But once, you know, for me, I believe we cook really good food at field trip. The team does, they execute. Yeah. I do menu development. I'm on the line with them sometimes. But for me, those are the top two things is employment and then really, really feeding folks, you know, listening to stories of like, we just hired a new manager in training and listen to Eric's story of like why he's only, why he's jumped around like six months to a year. It's like people aren't, people, women, people of color are, haven't been safe in the culinary world space for a long time. So uh, for people to say, yeah, man, I want to come here. And like, I look at the staff and people are smiling and it seems mm. like a really safe space means like, Hey, we're really doing our job. Like we're collectively doing our job. And I think that's, that's just, that's just a goal for the future of what the culinary world will look like. But that's really powerful because it, what you're talking about is creating culture in your kitchen and a place that people can do what they love and be supported. And the fact that, you know, for so many people have had a job that they had talent in, but haven't, haven't been in supportive environments. And the fact that you can not only give people a job, but make it a place that they love to work. I, I mean, wow, that must be like really yeah, special. It's tough, it's tough. And you know, it's funny because like a lot of employees, you know, during the pandemic, people were putting their wages up to recruit employ new talent. And I was like, hey guys, like this is the wage. I'm being honest with you. Like if I put the wage up because I have PPP money or restaurant revitalization or ER, like, in six, seven months, I'll probably will let you like business are going to let people go. Like right. this is a real wage. And if business increase, like we treat it as a business. I would say like five of our old employees have recently called us and want to come back. Hmm. And I want to bring them back. Right. Like I'm like, oh, I loved you when you were here. But what, what was it real? Like, did you leave because we treated you bad or did you leave because of the way oh, we left because of the wage? I'm hmm. like, but when you left, you made me seem like we weren't treating you right. Right. So like hmm. we've actually like collectively with my director of operations, Lisa Cash, she really shifts the, her goal is like the culture of the, of, of the, of the organization. And I commend her for it. She worked really hard on it, on things that I believe in things that she believes in. She's been in industry for 33 years as a restaurant owner, as working at some of the top places. So, you know, getting her perspective and like, Hey, this is what this restaurant used to do. And that wasn't fair. We're not going to do them. Like, you're what, why are we talking about this? Like we shouldn't even be so, it, it, it's great to like, cult, like to try to cultivate uh, what we believe the restaurant industry is. Is it too early to ask you what's next or what, what's on your radar for um, either another restaurant or another project or kind of what you have in the hopper? Uh, well, yeah, well, I mean, we're working on a new locations for field trips. So a couple of locations in uptown, uptown here in Manhattan, we'll look in some space in Brooklyn and maybe like NYU area. Amazing. Uh, just because uh, we've caught some tracks, like, some eyeballs for NYU team. And then maybe my next thing is what, what, what I just said. I didn't even think about that. It's like, if I know how to do fast casual, then I should be able to know how to do everyday dining. Yes. Right. Like yes. I should know how to do everyday dining because people that eat here at field trip will then they also eat at, I believe they eat at an everyday dining spot as Applebee's or Ruby Tuesdays. So maybe the next thing for me is every, as an everyday dining spot, similar to the Smith or something yes. of that nature. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Chef you just Johnson brought that out of me. You brought that out of me. I didn't <laughs> think about that. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, you you have a lot going on. You have a lot on your plate, to use a pun, um, and you're clearly working incredibly hard, but I wish you continued success and congratulations on your James Beard nomination and award. And it's just really fun to talk to you today. So thanks for your time and uh, tell people how they can find you. Uh, people can find me on all social media platforms at Chef JJ. Uh, you can find me on my website, uh, chefjj.co. Pull up to Field Trip uh, in Harlem or Rockefeller Center. Uh, or you can go to Field Trip US uh, on any social platforms to see what our food looks like. Amazing. Enjoy your day. Thanks so much, Chef. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. 